morning we are jumping into a new sermon series called uh, Becoming Disciples, Following Jesus Through Matthew. Uh, we're doing this as we continue to follow uh, this thing that we call the Narrative Lectionary, this uh, tool, this resource that gives us uh, a list of readings uh, that approach us sort of intentionally through the, the bigger story, the bigger narrative of scripture. And uh, one of the things that I love about the narrative lectionary is that each year from Christmas until Easter, like we are just camped out in one particular gospel. Uh, so it's a four-year cycle, so each year we, we sit in a different gospel. And I love this because like one of our theological convictions as Mennonites is that like we don't have a flat text. We don't have a flat Bible, meaning like I can't just find any passage in Judges and say that it has the same sort of like weight as like a passage from Matthew, right? Like we don't hold a flat text, but rather our, our Bible looks a little bit more like this, um, meaning that everything kind of flows to the Gospels and the Gospels sort of influence everything else. And so for us to spend like three months just camping out in one of the Gospels that tell us about the life, the teaching, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, like it does my Mennonite hearts some good, yeah. So um, that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. Um, a little, just one quick note about the name of this uh, series. Um, as I've been studying for Matthew, um, I've, I've come to the conclusion that this is like what, what um, Matthew's all about. Like, inviting us to become disciples of Jesus. Um, John, which we were in last year, like we had the name, Who is Jesus? Because that's, that's John's thing, right? Like, John's this mysterious, says what he could say in five words with 150 words, right? Like, um, very mysterious, trying to draw us into the mystery of Christ. But Matthew seems much more basic. Like, this is the story of Jesus. Come and follow along. Come become a disciple. Come become an apprentice of this one. And so uh, pick this name uh, just as a, re a reminder each week that this is what we're being invited into, to become disciples more and more of the one that we call Jesus. So uh, as we get ready to jump into our sermon for this morning, uh, let's pause for a word of prayer. Uh, loving God, uh, we are grateful uh, for this chance to, to be together. Uh, thank you for the gift of this community. And thank you um, that as we gather together now that um, we can turn and uh, wrestle with the scriptures. As we turn and uh, wrestle with these scriptures, uh, God, we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us. And so uh, we yield ourselves to your spirit now. Uh, would your spirit lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This, my friends, is a picture of Oakwood Slater Hall, more affectionately known just simply as Oakwood. Uh, this is the Bethel, or the freshman guys dorm at Bethel University where Allie and I went, and it is a special, special place. Um, this is how the website describes uh, Oakwood. Um, brotherhood, tradition, acceptance. These are the core pieces of the Oakwood Slater Hall experience. Bethel doesn't need fraternities because we have Oakwood. <laughs> These four walls, 45 rooms, and 99 beds have been around for 52 years. Probably the same beds, uh, mind you. <laughs> and if these walls could tell stories, they'd include late-night Taco Bell runs, full-scale Nerf Wars, Dude Week, and our five-year undefeated run in the Oakwood Mangus football game. But mostly they talk about a sense of community so intense it hangs in the air. I'd add, they'd probably also talk about a sense of smell that's so intense that it hangs in the air. <laughs> Bethel's not a party school, and Oakwood's not a party dorm. It's also not the prettiest dorm you'll see, but we can guarantee the Oakwood experience at Bethel is second to none. Be part of the Oakwood legacy and make your freshman year something you'll tell your kids and grandkids about. 
That is a very eloquent uh, description of Oakwood. And if I had to describe it in my own way, I would say it is a smelly, disgusting, sacred, holy place. (laughs) Uh, Oakwood is a really, really um, uh, special place and such a special place that I I gave two years of my life to it. So I gave one year uh, going through it as a, a freshman, as freshman guys do. And then I loved it so much that I returned during my junior year and gave another year of my life to it to be a resident assistant, trying to cultivate that same sort of experience for uh, the incoming group of freshmen. So I gave two years of my life to this place, and I'm pretty sure that it took something like 10 years off of the totality of my life. And yet, if I were to do it all over again, I don't think I would change a single thing. Uh, Oakwood was such a, a special place, and I have such fond memories, and I think the reason why it was such a special place and why I have so many memories is, like, it was a place of discovery for me. And not just me, like, every other guy that's in there, because for most of us, this is, like, our first experience of, like, trying to figure out life on our own. So you get all of these 18, 19-year-old guys who have no idea what they're doing, and you have them living together, and they're sorting it out, and, like, yeah, there were hard memories, but my goodness, there were so many good, wonderful memories. Like, this was such a special, special place. But the thing about Oakwood is is that this wasn't the only option for freshman guys to live on campus for uh, for guys at at Bethel. Um, There was another dorm on the other side of campus known as Mangus Hall. And Mangus, it was different because like Oakwood was all underclassmen minus resident assistants, but Mangus was like anybody. Anybody could live there. And so like that changes dynamics, but Mangus was also lacking, I don't know, like a, a certain quality. By certain quality, I mean all of the qualities that you would, it, meaning it had all of the qualities that you would want in a place that you live. Like it had air conditioning. And there wasn't a stench that slapped you in the face when you walked in the door. However, once you experienced that in Oakwood, like once you like were on the verge of sweating to death in those hot August and September nights, once, once you got used to that slap across the face that said, honey, I'm home, like you began to like appreciate these, these lack of qualities and saw them as qualities, and Mangus just didn't have that. And so for freshman guys who chose to live in Mangus, like, they were lacking in their experience of what it meant to be a, a, a Bethel freshman guy uh, on campus uh, at our school. Uh, because Oakwood in many ways was like this, this rite of, of passage. Uh, to, be, to be a guy on uh, Bethel's campus, to live in Oakwood was a, a rite of passage during this four-year stretch that you had. Now, here's the thing when it comes to rites of passage. Whether we mean it in like a literal or a physical sort of sense, rites of passage are like absolutely necessary. Um, So like thinking back to Bethel, like I could have absolutely spent four years at Bethel, uh, could have graduated and never set foot in Oakwood, and like that's that's a realistic possibility, right? And yet my experience of Bethel would have been so much lesser than without that experience. Like, there was something about that freshman year that, that flavored and impacted the rest of my four years and, again, took 10 years off of the totality of my life. But there was something about that, that year that, that was significant for my experience at Bethel and then the experience of my life from that point on. We can also think about it this way. Like, if you've ever moved from one city to the next, uh, you know that there's an, another sort of, like, rite of passage. Um, and that's, like, saying goodbye to people, right? Um, like, there's something about that process of, like, hugging people saying through tears how much you love them and care for them, that, that's significant and part of the moving process. Like, nobody's going to stop you at the state line and say, hey, you didn't uh, say goodbye to your neighbor. You need to go back before you can cross the line. Like, that's not how it works. But there is something about going through that process that allows you to, like, in some ways, like, dig up your roots and allow you to, like, 
uh, transplant those and begin to live a life of flourishing. Like there, there's something about that rite of passage that allows you to move forward in time. When we talk about rites of passages, um, I think we could describe them like this. A rite of passage is a tangible marker of time of moving from that to this. And so again, like whether we're talking about these things being necessary in like a physical or literal sense, these sorts of tangible markers in time of moving from that to this are absolutely necessary, even if just in like a mental or emotional or a psychological sort of way. And so it makes sense to me then that uh, Jesus, who shows up and is essentially bringing some sort of new movement around a particular way of being, that when he shows up on the scene, that he has his own sort of particular rite of passage that he invites would-be followers of him into. So here's what I mean by this. Um, in Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to uh, John the Baptist, who, uh, to put it nicely, is eclectic. To put it not so nicely, is downright strange and a bit of an oddball, right? Uh, we're told this about like, his, his clothing, and he lives out in the wilderness and eats bugs. Like, kind of a strange dude, right? And the things that he says to people are equally as strange. Like he calls people broods of vipers and says there's an ax sitting at the root of you and like threatens to chop them down, that sort of thing. And yet like in the midst of all of this strangeness, all of this eclecticness, all of this oddness, his message is laser focus. And his message is this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John's message all throughout is laser-focused on this single idea to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, for John, he's got something like spidey senses. And his spidey senses are tingling. He, he senses that there's something that's happening, that the kingdom of heaven, that this, this rule, this reign of God, is something is happening and it's coming to earth as it is in heaven. And like his senses are going off. And so his job here as like a mouthpiece of God is to... It, to let people know about this and to invite them into, into something to prepare their hearts and their lives for this coming kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And the way that John invites people into this is through this word, repent. Now, depending on your religious upbringing, when you hear that word repent, something deep within your soul may die or quiver just a little bit. Because often the way that we, uh, this, this word repent is talked about is to repent means to like feel terrible about yourself, to feel terrible about who you are, to essentially feel like the scum of the earth. And yet, like the word repent has nothing to do with that. But rather, uh, the Greek word that gets translated as repent can also be translated in a way that gives us, gives us English words like metamorphosis which carries with it not a connotation of feeling like the scum of the earth, but it has the connotation of like transformation, of change. Like quite literally, the word that gets translated repentance means to like change your mind or to change your perspective or to change your focus or to put it like colloquially, like to change your heart. Like visually, the way that we think about repentance is like you're walking down a particular path and to repent is to stop and turn and begin to walk down a different sort of path. And so uh, John has this, the spidey senses tingling and he invites people to, to change the way that they're living to enter into this, this new thing that's happening, this kingdom of God that's coming on earth as it is in heaven. Now, uh, I'll be honest, there have been times in my life where John's message just, I don't know, it feels a little harsh. Um, <laughs> like I, sometimes I read it and I'm like, come on, John, like, are things that bad? Like, 
This whole repentance thing, that feels harsh, right? But then there's seasons of life where I'm in like right now and I'm like, I think John's message makes as much sense today as it probably did 2,000 years ago. I mean, if you're walking around with your eyes even like partially wide open, like you're very aware of like the ways that, that we as human beings are, are functioning, whether it be in an intentional way or whether it's just the waters that we swim in and we're getting caught up in it. Like the ways that we get caught up in are breaking not only ourselves, but are breaking the world over and over and over again. I mean, if we look around like with eyes wide open, like we see that we have things like rampant injustice all around us. Like rampant racism, rampant prejudice, rampant consumerism, rampant militarism, like all around us. And these things are breaking us over and over and over again. And boy, do I think a message of a change of a mind, change of perspective, change of vision, change of heart is just as needed today as it probably was 2,000 years ago. So John comes with this message, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But then what's unique with John is that he has like a, a... also a call, a call to action with this. And so as people repent, um, they're invited to join him in this act of baptism, of like going out uh, into the waters and being submerged into the waters and being brought back up. And so uh, for John's audience, who would have been primarily Jewish, they come out into the wilderness where John is, and they meet him in the Jordan River, and they have this, this, this imagery of being submerged in the water and coming back up. And for John's audience, which was primarily Jewish, like this would have made sense within their Jewish imagination. Because within the Jewish law, there are these, these various stipulations uh, surrounding what we might call like ritual cleansing or ceremonial cleansing. So there's different things that occur in life, right? Um, like uh, perhaps sin, right? Uh, and the way that they thought about sin wasn't so much a list of things that you've done wrong, but they saw it as like a pollutant like dust or dirt that builds up over time and, and it needs to be cleansed. And so they had this like ritual sort of cleansing to wash that off. There are also things like biological processes that needed to be cleansed from time to time. There are also things like diseases and sickness and ailments that needed to be cleansed. So they had this imagery already of being cleansed. And so John piggybacks off of this imagery and says, you, you have a change in your life. And we mark this in a tangible way through this act of baptism. Now, Jesus enters onto the scene. And Jesus comes walking up to John the Baptist and says, Hey, Johnny boy, I would like to get in on that. And John says, No. (laughs) Because remember those spidey senses that John has tingling? Like they are going haywire right now as Jesus approaches John because John is recognizing that this kingdom of heaven that's coming on earth right now is in the, the embodiment of Jesus. That Jesus is the walking embodiment of this thing that's been making his spidey senses tingle. And as Jesus approaches and says, I want in on this, John says, respectfully, lordship, no. Because if anybody doesn't need to repent, it's you. And if anybody doesn't need to be baptized, It's you. And Jesus' response to him is a really fascinating one because Jesus says to him, let it be so, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. What a strange thing to say. (laughs) Because again, not only is Jesus like the walking embodiment of the kingdom of God, but that means that he's also like the walking embodiment of righteousness. Why does he have to do anything to fulfill righteousness if he is righteousness itself, right? Right? I think it's helpful to, to, to recognize what's happening here in this story. Because what we have here is um, Jesus, this incarnate experiment of God, right? 
God taking on flesh and dwelling among us in the person of Jesus. And what's happening here is this is God entering into the human experience. Entering into solidarity with humankind. Experiencing the things that we as human beings have to experience. And so, Jesus does not have to repent and be baptized. But for Jesus to do this incarnate experiment fully, to do it the right way, it's right for him to also enter into this process. He doesn't have to do this process, but it's the right thing for him to do, to live fully into this mission of experiencing the things that we as human beings have to experience. We can think about it this way. Um, I, as a parent, do not have to care about Thomas the Tank Engine, correct? It is a little below my pay grade and what like, sparks my interests and makes me excited to run home and turn on Netflix, right? However, there is somebody in my household who cares very, very much about Thomas the Tank Engine, and that is my son. <laughs> and so, while I don't actually have to care about Thomas the Tank Engine, the right thing for me is to care about Thomas the Tank Engine, right? And so while we have all of these people, characters, tanks, or uh, tank engines, I don't know, trains, all of these things that I didn't know about three years ago, like these are the conversations in our house. We talk about Thomas, we talk about James, we talk about Gordon, we talk about Henry, we talk about Percy, we talk about Kana, we talk about Nia, we talk about Rebecca, we talk about Cranky, and we talk about Diesel, right? Do I have to care about any of this? No, absolutely not, but it's the right thing as a parent, right? And so I think with this story, when Jesus says that this is to fulfill all righteousness, this is Jesus, God in flesh among us, God with us, saying, I don't have to do this, but this is the right thing for me to do, to enter into the human experience, because it's good for you to have this process as well. And so John consents, and uh, Jesus is baptized. Now, when it comes to uh, baptism within like, the, the Christian uh, conversation, within the, the Christian imagination, Baptism is a lot of different things. Um, there's all sorts of beautiful threads and beautiful images that are drawn all throughout the scriptures to, to get us to this big, beautiful thing that we call baptism. So baptism is many things, but one thing it is specifically is a rite of passage. Baptism serves as like this tangible marker in time that says that we have moved from that to this. It serves as this tangible marker of time that says that we have made some sort of decision in our life that we've made some sort of transition in our life, that we've uh, experienced some sort of transformation in our life, or we are anticipating some sort of transformation in our life as we follow Jesus. It serves as a tangible marker in time of saying that you were once that, but now you are this. It serves as a tangible marker in time saying that you, were once, um, you once had these perspectives, but now you have this perspective. It serves as a tangible marker of time of saying that you once thought that way, but now you think this way. It serves as a tangible marker of time saying that you were once caught up in that, but now you were caught up in this. Baptism is many things, but one thing it is specifically is a rite of passage. There's a, a Franciscan uh, priest and author and overall spiritual guru named uh, Richard Rohr. And uh, a number of years ago, I think like in the 80s maybe, uh, he got really um, captivated by these ideas of rites of passage, or as he refers to them, initiation rites. And uh, he began to notice that like within the Western world, we don't have initiation rites for people as they transition from childhood to adulthood. Um, 
And so he, he began to like look into more like non-Western cultures, more tribal or more indigenous cultures. He began to notice that they had like very concrete initiation rites for people as they moved from childhood to adulthood. But what was interesting was that like it wasn't for everybody. It was actually just for boys um, because there are things that occur uh, in a woman's life that uh, naturally signals this move from girlhood to uh, womanhood. But like boys don't have this sort of thing. And what he began to notice is, like, if boys don't have this sort of, like, initiation right in their life that signals this transition from that to this, from boyhood to adulthood, um, they never actually grow up. And he says, by the way, like, as you look at Western culture, this is a big part of our problem. We have a bunch of boys who grew up and now are walking around as men who still have the perspective of boys, and that's why we're in so much of the mess that we are in. Am I right? So what he began to notice, then, is that there were these initiation rights for boys, and with almost all of these initiation rites, he says that the, the boy would have some sort of confrontation with death. And I don't mean like somebody would jump out from a bush and go, bah! Like it wasn't that sort of confrontation with death, but it was like a confrontation with their own sort of like mortality. A confrontation with this, this reality that they are finite human beings. A confrontation with the sense that they are limitedness in like what they are able to accomplish in life. And it was once that, you know, it was through this process of like confronting their own sort of death, their own sort of mortality, limitedness, finiteness, that they could actually grow up. That they could actually move from boyhood into manhood. That they could actually grow up from being a child into an adult. But it required this sort of like tangible marker in time to signal that they were moving from that to this. And my goodness, do I feel like the correlation between that and baptism is so strong and so obvious. Because again, baptism and repentance have historically like gone hand in hand. That repentance is this acknowledgement of coming face to face with our own sort of mortality. Coming face to face with our own sort of limitedness. Coming face to face with our own sort of finiteness. That when we, we repent, we come to the reality that the path that we have been on is not delivering on the promises that it has made to us. That it does not indeed lead to things like life and joy and the fullness of life that we long for, but rather it leads to what we might call like a death. And so baptism then serves as this tangible marker of time of moving from that to this. Of moving from the old way into the new way of moving from uh, this, this ego project that we get caught up in, of building up the empire of me, myself, and I, of following into all of these false narratives and these false scripts about who I am and what I should be pursuing with my life as we move into what we might call like the true self that finds itself getting caught up in these true scripts and these true narratives about who we are, which comes directly from God's very self who says to each and every one of us, you are my child. Baptism serves as this tangible marker in time as we move from what scriptures refer to as like the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of sin and death and darkness into the kingdom of God. Baptism serves as this tangible marker of time as we move from death to life. Baptism is many things, but one thing it is specifically is a rite of passage. Uh, there's a professor at uh, Goshen College named uh, John Roth. And uh, for all intents and purposes, he is our representative in broader church conversation. Um, and uh, he recently um, engaged in what was, I think it was like a seven-year conversation with representatives from the Catholic Church and representatives from the Lutheran Church around this idea of baptism. Um, 
So Catholics and Lutherans practice what we call infant baptism, so babies are baptized, and we as Mennonites or Anabaptists practice adult baptism or believer's baptism, so when somebody reaches a level of maturity and can make that choice for themselves. And these groups have often been a little antagonistic with one another. You can go all the way back to the Radical Reformation, we would say, maybe a little more than antagonistic, right? But that's the point, right? Like this was an act of making peace among these groups. And so after seven years of discussing, they came up with like a 70, 80-page document. I, re- I confess, I have not read the whole thing, but I skimmed through some of the findings for Mennonites. And one of the, the findings was that we as Mennonites need to remember our baptism. This, this process of remembering our baptism is actually something that's really common among Catholics and Lutherans and other uh, traditions that practice infant baptism. So for example, if you've ever walked into a Catholic church, you'll see a baptismal font, and you'll see people dip their hands in it and make the sign of the cross. This is them like remembering their baptism. And as I sat with this, I thought, if we're Anabaptists, and we believe in like believer baptism, like we've kind of upped the ante with baptism, right? Like We've made it like a conscious choice. So if we're going to put a greater emphasis on baptism, like... We should remember our baptism, right? If we've put such an emphasis that, like, this is something as an adult, you make this decision, we should remember this from time to time. And so that's what we're, we're going to do uh, this morning. Um, so in just a moment, uh, I am uh, going to invite you to come down the center aisle, much like communion here, and meet me here on the ground. And I'm going to dip my hand in water. And I'm going to make the sign of the cross on your forehead. Um, Meanwhile, I will say, uh, remember that your life is in Christ. Again, this is the, the, the imagery of, of baptism, right? As, as this tangible marker of moving from that to this, that, that we're remembering that our life is in Christ. And then you can head back out to the side and head back to your seats. Now, I recognize that in a room like this, there is an awful lot of diversity around baptism. First, we have baptized and we have non-baptized, Right? Even among baptized, we have a wide variety of experiences, right? We have those who have been baptized as adults. We have those who are baptized as kids. We have those who are baptized as babies. And we have those who have been baptized more than once, right? We also have those who are not baptized, right? Maybe these are adults who haven't made that decision yet for a wide variety of reasons. And we have kids who this invitation hasn't been made to yet because of our theological convictions, right? For this practice, everybody is invited, As you come forward, if you have been baptized, hear these words, remember that your life is in Christ. And may this be a a way of remembering your baptism. And if you haven't been baptized, hear these words, remember that your life is in Christ. And see this as like anticipating a future baptism for you. Um, As we do this, uh, Aubrey's going to lead us in uh, the song, As I Went Down to the River, which is sort of a traditional baptismal song. Uh, You can sing along and sing the journey, uh, the green book, number 79. Um, So I'm going to pray for this time, and then I'm going to step down here, and uh, then Aubrey's going to lead us in that song. Um, So let's pray. Loving God, um, thank you uh, for taking on flesh. Thank you for the experience of the incarnation. And thank you that we see in the life of Jesus, Jesus entering into solidarity with us and our experiences. Thank you for this gift of baptism. Thank you for this this tangible marker of time. Thank you for this rite of passage as we move from that to this, as we move from death into life. And now, God, as we uh, move to remember our baptism, 
May we remember that our life is in Christ. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.